Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. All right, good morning, everyone. It's a bit of an unusual and unique Friday Workplace Briefing this week. You've just got me flying solo. Andrew's still heading back from overseas and our other intrepid members either busy and under the pump or unfortunately unwell. So we wish everyone the best uh, in the team. Hope they feel better. Um, And you get to listen to me drone on. Hopefully this is, for my own ego, the most liked and viewed Friday workplace briefing of all time, but I won't take it too personally if it's not. But look, on to the news items this week because we've got a fair bit of stuff to cover. First of all, fantastic finally to see in fulfilment of an election commitment from the uh, state Labor government in South Australia. They have introduced this week a new bill to introduce industrial manslaughter into the state there. Um, The bill will have the same sort of elements that we're seeing across the jurisdictions in Australia. They're reckless or grossly negligent conduct that breaches a work health and safety duty and that results in the death of another person. Classic maximum penalty of 20 years imprisonment and $18 million for companies. And this really sees it fall into line uh, with the other jurisdictions such as Victoria, Queensland and WA. So watch this space, but it'll be very interesting to see how things progress now that we're seeing more of that uh, universal industrial manslaughter across Australia. Saturday was 1 July, and as many things tick over, so too does those things occur in our employment space. A couple of things just obviously to remind you all of now that we've hit 1 July in the employment space, the modern award wages increases by 5.75%. So if you access the awards on the Fair Work Commission or the Fair Work Ombudsman website, that'll have the latest rates included in there, but those will have taken effect from the first pay period inclusive of 1 July. The national minimum wage, of course, we've spoken about this before, that increases down $882.80 per week or $23.23 an hour. The high income threshold for unfair dismissal claims has increased now to $167,500 per annum and the compensation limit of the six months pay capped at a maximum of $83,750. This is quite a you know, substantial amount now on the high income threshold. A lot of businesses will now most likely find that most junior slash non-senior level employees are going to be covered by that and captured by that threshold. So making sure that your processes and procedures are in place around employees to ensure that you're not falling foul of unfair dismissal protections when you go to terminate has really become even more important again. And a final reminder, obviously, on the superannuation guarantee contributions, that's increased to 11%. Worth double-checking what your contractual arrangements are. Are you paying employees inclusive or exclusive of super? Obviously, if it's exclusive, you're going to have that bigger increase to the total wage bill for your employees. If it's inclusive, that's obviously going to have a shift and a reduction in the take-home pay and a greater increase in the superannuation contribution. So a reminder... Uh, to check that now that that's increased again. Interestingly, we've been charting over the last few months with you, including into last year, the trend of wage increases under enterprise agreements. Now, we know that it's been the case that those have fallen well behind the uh, level of inflation and CPI, uh, meaning that there's been sort of real wage decreases, notwithstanding the increases under these enterprise agreements. 
that the average wage increase in enterprise agreements for their March quarter of this year, 3.9% on an average term of 2.4 years. Again, although that's still behind inflation, it's actually the biggest quarter increase for wages under enterprise agreements uh, since the June quarter of 2012. So well over a decade since we've seen a trend in enterprise agreement wage increases this be this high. What this says to us that we've been picking up on in the trend of is that increasingly employees and unions are advocating and negotiating for increases that are closer to inflation, albeit they're still largely falling behind that inflationary rate. So a really interesting trend there. Um, and a final bit of sort of little quick bits of news that we mentioned a few weeks ago that the first single interest multi-employer or a bargaining declaration had been sought, the application had been made by the IEU in WA. They've already sort of abandoned that application at the 11th hour before uh, the first directions hearing that was scheduled before the Fair Work Commission, uh, the IEU have uh, withdrawn the application. No reasoning provided so far and they've not made any public comment about it. But it was interesting in the context where some of the employer groups that were going to be involved in that application had actually said that they wouldn't stand in the way of that application being made. So a little bit unclear, but very interesting nonetheless to see that sort of develop in this sort of initial space, particularly where the Fair Work Commission were themselves treating it quite seriously, set up a whole separate website to deal with that claim alone. So a bit of an interesting trend there. On to the first case then. Look, an interesting case here, Obviously, we've spoken about one of the secure jobs, better pay provisions brought in was in relation to the zombie enterprise agreement. So those that pre-existed the Fair Work Act that had continued in effect because of the transitional Fair Work Act provisions and that were really sort of just hanging around, they're all now lawfully going to sunset on the 7th of December. But employers who have them in place at the moment can make an application to the Fair Work Commission um, to see those so-called zombie agreements uh, continue in effect. And what this case has been is a really interesting one. It's something I remind clients of in the industrial relations space all the time is that when you are making claims about your enterprise agreement and about your businesses to the Fair Work Commission, it's really important that you do provide evidence to substantiate that claims. So in this matter, Suncoast Scaffold, they had a pre-2009 enterprise agreement. It covered their administrative and building and construction employees, only a total of 12 this stage. They made an application to the Commission to have that um, zombie agreement continue for the maximum period, which was a four-year period. And they did it on the basis, they said, the employees will be better off overall if they continue to be covered by this 2009 agreement and that the workers who are covered by it are still happy or satisfied with the deal. Now, both of these things came unraveled really quickly because the Fair Work Commission's agreements team, they sit down and they undertake that forensic analysis of your enterprise agreement, and they're doing the same now with the zombie agreements to determine whether employees are truly better off overall. They had a look at the building and construction employees covered, which was about 75% of the 12 employees under the agreement, and determined that actually for those who work a traditional sort of 50-hour building working week, they would not be better off overall under the 2009 agreement than they were if they were instead covered by the building and construction award. 
The 2009 agreement had no overtime penalties, no payments of that nature, allowances and things like that, and allowed the, the um, Suncoast to average the hours over a year rather than over a month. So the Commission was satisfied that, look, this didn't pass the better off overall test it did interestingly note that the better off overall test for a zombie agreement actually allows a submission to be made about how it affects a group of employees rather than each individual employee, which is required under a test for a new enterprise agreement. But it was otherwise very dismissive of what the employer Suncoast sought to do here, including in particular that it said that the employees were satisfied, but it actually led no independent evidence to demonstrate that. Importantly, none of the employees who were employed at the time the agreement was made was still made. So factoring in all that and also with the Commission looking at a broader test that it's allowed to, looking at whether it's otherwise reasonable to extend the life of the zombie agreement, it determined not to. So just a reminder, if you're going to make an, a, a statement, you're going to make a submission to the Fair Work Commission, make sure it's substantiated with evidence, something I remind people about all the time, but this case, a great reminder to do so. Now, on to the next case now. Look, we've got a really interesting one here. I think something that clients always raise with us is, look, we've got all these, we've got employees who are making a lot of these complaints. I get the feeling, I get the sense that they're a little bit frivolous and vexatious. They're normally an employee that's seen to be a difficult employee who keeps making complaints and the complaints aren't substantiated. So a really interesting example here where it was a pit crew operator uh, who worked for Virgin Australia Airlines, effectively had been the subject of several complaints himself about their safety and their commitment to safe practices in the workplace, who then went and made, you know, a sort of multitude of different complaints about different employees and colleagues that were really weren't substantiated. You know, 11 safety reports that were false or trivial without legitimate safety concerns, a colleague who was accused a colleague who was angry with him of trying to assault him, claimed another colleague was unsafe when uh, by doing a particular action when it was the employee himself who had done that action unsafely, claiming people had yelled at him, claiming people had made obscene comments about his wife, you know, that he was being framed for terror, like just absurd sort of stuff. And, you know, was terminated on the basis of those uh, false claims. Employee tried to claim that that was unfair um, and harsh and just or unreasonable. And thankfully, the Fair Work Commission looked at the totality of this. And interestingly, one thing, as we've talked about increasingly, we're seeing, made comments about how this was a, a creation of psychosocial risks for the other employees. And on that basis, it was a valid reason to terminate. So it was held to be valid. And just a reminder that, yeah, employees aren't free to make series of false allegations. It can result in the end of their employment. Uh, an interesting case here around the application of the Disability Discrimination Act. We don't often see Disability Discrimination Act claims actually make all their way all the way through to the courts and then be successful. But here, an employee employed as a training train driver was required as part of the process to fill out the sort of pre-employment injury and illness form and attend an IME. Now, the employee, the trainee train driver had ADHD, was a neurodivergent person as well and had autism as well. Now, she ticked no regarding illnesses or psychiatric disorders on the form because she later claimed what she, was, she had was not an illness or a psychiatric disorder, but did tell the IME doctor that she was someone who had autism and 
had ADHD. On a training day, she became stressed and on that day needed to use some medication. She told the employer that's what she was going to do because she was concerned if a drug test was done that that would appear. The employer then pulled her out of the training program and requested a briefing from her doctor and then terminated her employment. The employee then lodged this disability discrimination claim and effectively alleged and said, well, it's not, I wasn't dishonest, I was honest, you didn't inquire enough with the initial IME to learn about what I had said, and the only reason or the substantive and operative reason that you terminated my employment was because I had ADHD and autism. And the judge agreed here with the employee, the judge accepted the employee's evidence that they had told the IME doctor that they had autism and ADHD and wasn't satisfied that the employer had made proper inquiries of the initial IME provider and that the second IME that the the employer was directed to afterwards, that Sydney Trains hadn't told that second IME that the employee had disclosed that she had ADHD and autism to the first IME. So, The court found that there was no reasonable basis for the employer to have uh, concluded that the employee was acting dishonestly, and so it ultimately meant that the only and substantive reason for the termination was her disability. So the remedy not determined as yet, um, so we're going to see what happens there. But look, it's a reminder that you need to, although if you're sending an employee to an IME for safety reasons, as is here, you've got to make the proper inquiries of the IME. You can't just rely on what's written on the form because these forms aren't necessarily drafted to capture different types of disorders such as autism and ADHD, for example. So a reminder, you know, again, too, that increasingly as as methods of testing become better and diagnosis around these sorts of issues, you need to adapt your systems to accommodate those reasonable adjustments, all of those things that are really relevant but need to make sure that if a person is presenting with those things and they've revealed information about them, that you're handling it in an appropriate way. Finally, another little interesting case about the regulators that Nina was very keen to have included here today, a little bit of a niche issue here, but often clients bring to us concerns about, you know, well, our work safe feels like it's overreaching, it's stepping outside its powers a little bit here, what can we do? And more often than not, obviously, they aren't taking actions and engaging in behaviour like that. But a really interesting one here where there were several persons conducting a business or undertaking work on the same site. They attempted to negotiate work groups of representation by health and safety representatives. They couldn't agree on which people would be part of those and so on. So one of the workers actually applied to the regulator to appoint someone as a health and safety representative and make a decision about how the work groups would be determined. The regulator then did do that, but interestingly, in doing so, it overstepped the powers and the limits of its powers because the court actually found that where there were these multiple PCBUs engaging in the same space, the regulator didn't have the power to appoint. It could only assist. So a bit of a niche one, a bit of a rare win, so to speak, for our businesses against the regulator. But again, just a bit of a reminder that, you know, the regulator is not the be-all, end-all, and sometimes they do overstep a little bit. So, look, on to the main topic today, and just look, a really interesting one when we talk about employee analytics. Now, I know a lot of our sort of HR operators out there will say, well, look, you know, we hear about employee analytics all the time. 
what does it actually mean? What are we talking about? And obviously what we're talking about in analytics is it's, it's a data gathering and data collection about your employees at their employment and your workspaces. So employee analytics can take lots of different forms. It's observational data. It's survey data. Uh, it's testing results. You know, it, it is really anything that relates to um, employees and mainly around the nature of their roles, the productivity that they're providing in your business. But importantly, while we're sort of talking about it today in the context of how does this apply in sort of the legal sense is we know now that there are increasingly obligations on employers that require us to be able to emphatically and confidently make decisions about employees and their workplaces, including around their health and safety, and importantly, in the context of psychosocial and psychological hazards. So really what we see is employee analytics taking on a new element, which is that if we're going to take steps to determine what is reasonably practicable to take steps to protect the health and safety of our employees in an OH&S and the WOH&S sense, but more specifically in the context of psychological health and psychological safety, we need data-driven steps to identify, well, what are some of those actual risks? So what are we saying is critical for success in an employee analytics space? Well, it's, it's systems, yes, okay? No doubt about it, when you try to collect the data and analyse data, you need one proper systems in place to actually collect that data, you know, structured systems, what am I using? Is it, is it platforms? Is it apps? Is it surveys? Whatever it might be, but a structure that's really clear around that material. But then as well, it's identifying when you then take that data, who am I handing responsibility to to make an analysis and undertake an analysis of that data? Are they equipped with the right set of objective standards? Do they have the skills and experience they need? to properly analyse the data that they're getting and then apply that data then to the types of issues that are our priorities. So what are we prioritising with the collection of that data? Is it the health and safety? Is it the work design? Is it productivity? Understanding that in particular is a key aspect of how useful these employee analytics will be. So it comes back to what is your purpose of your employee analytics and what good purpose are you trying to put it to? And that really does require a clear analysis of your use of the data to begin with. So often we're inclined to simply collect data because we think we need it. You know, I'm sending out a wellbeing survey. I've done it the same time and the same way for several different years. I collect it, I take the information, I put it away in the digital filing cabinet and it just stays there. Well, that is all well and good, but it's a waste of effort and exercise if we're not really taking that data. Well, first of all, that we're not really actually engaging that data and implementing a way of collecting it that is targeted towards a particular purpose. So if I'm trying to attain information about employee wellbeing, well, am I doing it in the best way by simply just dropping a survey in everyone's inbox each year? They're seeing that nothing ever happens by getting truthful and fulsome responses, probably not at that stage. So targeting the system there, but then understanding what are you going to put the information that you get to use to do 
what do I want to get out of that analysis? And then how can I take that information? But importantly, not making those steps, those structures and those goals too complex. You know, no bit of employee analytics is ever going to be a complete total answer to a problem that you have. It's never going to be an entire solution. So narrowing the nature of the employee analytics and making sure that you put it to practice in a way that's useful is really important. Final sort of reminder when it comes to using your employee analytics, don't wait for a perfect system. Just try and get a system that works, that's practical, but that you're giving the proper attention to. You know, again, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Pursue something that works within the confines of your resources, within the confines of your business, and that is targeted to what you're trying to achieve. So you'll see us talking a lot about employee analytics as we're moving forward through the workplace briefing, really, because we do see it quite linked to really important aspects of management of your people and management of your businesses as things change and as the world around what you need to do in your workplaces, particularly the psychological hazards and the psychosocial safety, really change. All right, so on to our case study then this week. So a bit of a long one. And classically, Andrew's thrown in a couple of words that he thinks he's going to catch me with, but I'm going to do my best to make sure he doesn't. All right, Gabrielle was the maitre d' at Garçons, an upbeat French restaurant in the casino complex at South Bank. He had worked there for two years. He had fostered a them and us culture with the staff against the kitchen, led by the mercurial Bertrand. Bertrand had led three Michelin star restaurants, had his ups and downs, but was a perfectionist. Part of his perfectionist drive was to ensure that the food was served with the art that had created it. Gabriel considered this an intrusion on his turf. He had three confrontations with Bertrand, the final one with the serving of the whole coral trout and the Chateau Briand. Both required silver service. Bertrand had deliberately cooked both for the wait staff and was explaining how to cut and serve. Part of the way through, Gabrielle piped up and said to Bertrand, we know we don't need to be lectured by a chef about how to do our job. Bertrand was furious, but he contained it. He said, I'm showing you as I have watched over the last two weeks and you have not done it well or appropriately. Gabrielle stormed out. He subsequently made allegations against Bertrand that he had been repeatedly demeaning to him and his staff refused to recognise the line where he had control and where Gabriel had control, spoke rudely and offensively to Gabriel and waiting staff and had created an unsafe workplace. An investigation was unable to particularise the claims. Rather, many staff found Gabriel unpredictable, self-absorbed and dismissive. CCTV supported Bertrand's concerns around the serving of his two key dishes. When interviewed, Gabriel said that Bertrand had an explosive temper that scared people and gave two examples. When tested, the evidence was patently false. On the first occasion, it was Gabriel who was rude and threatening, and Bertrand intervened to de-escalate the conflict. The second allegation could not have happened, as Bertrand was not working that day. All right, so question one. So was the original complaint by Gabriel a complaint at law? Did it require the restaurant to investigate? And if not, why? Now, look, a bit of a tricky one here. In the context of what we've discovered by completing the investigation, we know that what was raised by the employee was, of course, patently false in two respects. 
and that witnesses couldn't substantiate what was alleged. But at face value, what Gabriel has raised here indicates a concern for the health and well-being of himself and others in the workplace. Now, once an employee does put us on notice of something that does uh, create a, an indication that there is a concern for health and safety, it really will meet the threshold of a complaint at law. So a complaint that's valid under the OHS Act, at least at the start. So this is the key, the key caveat here. It's is it a complaint sufficient enough to warrant investigation at law, not whether or not it then maintains the status as a valid complaint when it comes to potential termination of employment or dealing with it as a safety issue. So would it meet that threshold? It's a low bar in my view. It's put the employer on notice of health and safety concerns. It does warrant investigation to consider and then make conclusions about which we can then reach at a later stage to determine whether they were themselves valid or not. So question two, looking at the case of shame true energy, was there evidence that Gabriel's complaint was based on an ulterior motive and therefore could constitute serious misconduct? So we know from undertaking the investigation, you know, going back to that first point, we now have evidence that indicates that both from witnesses and from Bertrand in his response, that Gabriel has pursued these complaints potentially for an ulterior motive. So one of the two of the allegations are, are patently false. We know from the information that we provided here that Gabriel has created a, a them versus us culture between the kitchen and the servers. We know that in that confrontation around that the, the serving of the two dishes, that he was the one who spoke with the raised voice. And he's obviously told, we can assume, the investigator, that he does have a dislike for Bertrand in the way that he operates and that feeling that he's come across into his territory. So I think when you look at the circumstances, it doesn't appear to be complaints that are based on a valid reason. So we know for the purposes of the general protections provisions that the employee bears the obligation at the first level of demonstrating that they had a proper lawful basis on which to make a complaint or a general complaint or inquiry about their employment. Here, we would be able to hopefully refute that it actually, in fact, was a proper basis for him to make that complaint or inquiry in the first place. So Shea and True Energy then comes into effect because we can say, well, look, we've established actually that these haven't been complaints that are valid. They're not a proper exercise of a workplace right in that sense. And they're infected by this ulterior motive, an ulterior motive that does go to creating clear dishonesty, but also one that creates a risk to health and safety, again, the psychological health and safety of other employees. Looking at that case we discussed a little earlier, there's a proper basis there. So could it constitute serious misconduct? Absolutely. So question three, the investigator found that all of Gabriel's allegations were untrue, but they felt that perhaps Gabriel believed them. Can it be serious misconduct where the wrongdoer tells untruths but believes them? So the interesting thing I think this raises about the concept of serious misconduct is it really goes to the question of, was this truly dishonest in a serious misconduct sense? So if you have an employee who so validly in their own mind believes the truth of what they're saying, they aren't necessarily on a certain level acting dishonestly 
in that sense because they've not lied in their own mind. Now, objectively speaking, what was said was untrue. But what I would say is that when you go down this path, the emphasis on the dishonest aspect of it probably isn't where you would want to go. More the focus would be on the fact that the serious misconduct arises from, again, the false accusations creating that risk to psychological health and safety of the other employees, including Bertrand. But I would de-emphasise, I think, the focus on the dishonesty, notwithstanding that dishonesty is an objective test, not a subjective one. Uh, finally, Christian Paul Gabriel put in a workers' comp claim following the demonstration by Bertrand, saying his actions towards him was a psychological hazard. His treating psychologist said it was the straw that broke his camel's back. Will his claim be accepted? And if so, what impact will that have on disciplinary action? So this goes again to our favourite bugbear in the workers' comp space perception. You know, Gabriel clearly perceived that the actions were bullying. On that basis, given that we know it's in Victoria, it's highly likely that the claim's going to be accepted on that basis. What impact will it have on disciplinary action? Well, it creates that risk around the, the maintaining of the role for the 12 months. There's obviously then the issue about the serious misconduct and the, uh, the opportunities to terminate there, but ultimately it's going to be a big issue. So a bit of a tricky one, but it comes back to that perception problem. All right, well, thanks so much, everyone, for joining me solo this week. Uh, next week, hopefully, you won't just have to hear me drone on uh, for 30 minutes. I hope it was not painful for all of you to listen at home. Please follow through. Uh, give us a like. Give us a react. We always appreciate your engagement, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Have a good one.